You may know Flannery O'Connor. She is a Southern writer. Uh, she was called the master of the grotesque because her stories oftentimes revolve or switch back and forth, I should probably say, between revulsion and a revelation. And she's probably best known for her story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, but I think she really shines through in her short stories. And one of the best is Revelation. In fact, if I could uh, encourage people who've grown up, especially in the South and around Christianity, to read one short story from Flannery O'Connor, this would definitely be it. There's some rough language in there, but, um, but it's really, really good. And the scene opens up with Mrs. Ruby Turpin going into a doctor's office with her husband. And she does what many of us do. We size up the room and look at the people who are around us. And in her own mind, she's doing this because she wants to kind of classify herself in a ranking or pecking order with everyone else there. And sure enough, as she looks around and she sees people of different races and sees one college girl that she immediately deems as white trash, she sees herself at the top of that pile, <laughs> the top of the pyramid. And as she sits down and makes herself comfortable, and there's one lady who's kind of maybe somewhat similar to her, enough that she can talk to, and so she begins this conversation, which is really more of a monologue, and the topic, of course, is Mrs. Ruby Turpin herself. And at one point, as she sits down and makes herself comfortable, she just says this, I thank the Lord. Imagine this, in a, in a doctor's room, office, the waiting room there, a person coming in and saying this. She says, I thank the Lord that he has blessed me with a good disposition. If it's one thing I am, Mrs. Turpin said with feeling, it's grateful. When I think of all I could have been besides myself and all I got, a little bit of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. O'Connor says, with maybe a, her tongue in cheek, at the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude, and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you. At that moment, a college girl named Mary Grace finally had enough and threw a book at her. To the white trash college girl, Mary Grace, she said, What you got to say to me? She asked hoarsely and held her breath, waiting as for a revelation. The girl raised her head her gaze locked with Mrs. Turpin's. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Mrs. Turpin leaves the office, and the scene picks up with her back on her farm. She's sitting there watering her hogs, and she's just fuming. Her fists clenched. She's lifting her eyes to the heavens, and she says to God, why you got to send me a message like that? And she says, I'm not like these other people. If you wanted me to be like them, why didn't you make me like them? And as she's sitting there, just angry like her hogs, a grunting and a rooting and a groaning, she has this vision as the sun sets of people, unlike her, those people she despised, entering heaven ahead of her. And at the end of that train are people who are like her, who had a little bit of everything and a good disposition to boot, having their goodness burned off so they could enter into the paradise and presence of God. I love that short story, and it's well worth reading. At one point, Flannery O'Connor was asked about why she uses these moments of kind of shocking grace and revelation in her stories. And this is what she said. You have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout. And for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. I think in one sense, that's a good way to look at what Jesus does or his method of operation many times when he is encountering people. Now, Jesus would meet people wherever they were. 
whether they were the down and out or the religious elite. And we're going to look at a passage today where he's invited over to the house of a Pharisee, one of the religious elites of his day. And everything just goes sideways right off the bat. Jesus is going to be shouting to the hard of hearing. He's going to use imagery to draw, to draw large startling figures so that these people might, by grace, as if by a revelation, come to self-understanding and see their need of what Jesus has to offer. So to get ready to look at this passage, I want to ask you whether you're new to Christianity or maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time. How open are you to having Jesus say maybe some really uncomfortable, tough things to you? I ask that question because that's exactly what Jesus is going to do with these religious leaders. And so we're going to call our study today the Inside Out Revolution of Jesus. And just notice as we go through this passage, the words inside and outside that Jesus uses. We're going to pick it up in chapter 11, verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. Now, there's more going on than meets the eye just off the bat here. Jesus has been already saying some really tough things to the crowds. And here the Pharisees are getting a little bit uncomfortable, and they were wanting to challenge Jesus anyway. So this Pharisee invites Jesus over to dine with him. Now, what we need to know about the Pharisees is that they were the, not only the religious elite of the day, but they saw themselves as the separated ones. And what they did is they added all kinds of rules for people to follow. And in their thinking, if they could just get other people to be righteous like they thought themselves to be, then the kingdom of God would come. In fact, in order to be a Pharisee, you would have to spend almost uh, up to a year in devoted discipline, showing that you're willing to follow the strict sect that they had put out and, and all the rules that came along with it. And so here, a Pharisee, while Jesus is speaking, interrupts him and, and basically invites him to dinner. So Jesus goes and has dinner with him. It says he went in and reclined at table. Verse 38 the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner. Now, Jesus is intentional in what he did here. It was common custom in that day, especially among the religious elite, to wash your hands before eating dinner. Now, they weren't thinking like you and I do about getting germs off our hands. Germ theory hadn't been invented yet, and they just thought themselves, the Pharisees especially, uh, undergoing this ritual in which they would wash the filth of the world off of their hands. They saw themselves as being contaminated by everything out there. And so they're actually a little bit astonished to see that Jesus did not wash before dinner. And here's a little interesting detail. The, the Greek word for wash is actually baptize. He did not baptize himself before dinner. Now it's not thinking in terms of what we're thinking of with baptism, but just the simple washing, which is what baptism pictures. But anyway, the Pharisee invites Jesus over. Jesus goes. He meets people with where, where they are. Um, and he intentionally doesn't wash his hands, and he sits down at the table, and the Pharisees are shocked, and they're astonished that Jesus didn't do this. And Jesus was intentional, and this is what we find out in verse 39. And the Lord said to him, that's interesting, just before, just as a side note, we don't really have time to dive into it, but Jesus, I'm sorry here, Luke designates Jesus as simply the Lord. The Lord said to him, this is interesting, because the Pharisee didn't say anything out loud, right? But Jesus could probably read his expression all over his face. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! 
Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? (laughs) I really like passages like this because I think oftentimes we domesticate Jesus and we make him into this version of just this really nice person who would never offend anyone. And that's just not the Jesus of the scriptures. He goes into this dinner with these leaders of Israel and he goes right straight for the jugular. And Flannery O'Connor's terms, like Mary Grace, he takes up the book and throws it right between the eyes of the Pharisee, right? He says, you Pharisees cleanse the outside, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. How would you like it if you invited someone over for dinner and before things even get going, they just blurt out and say, you are full of greed and wickedness. I mean, how do you recover? Where does the dinner go from that point on, right? But Jesus says, you fools. He's not just engaging in name-calling there. In fact, I don't want to put it that way. He's not engaging in name-calling. He's trying to, to grab hold of their attention, to, to get them to engage their minds. Did not he, that is God, who made the outside that you're worried about, not also make the inside? You guys are preoccupied with the outside, but it's the inside that's the problem. And here Jesus says, you're full of greed and wickedness. You who think you set the standard for people to follow. You're full of greed and wickedness. In the Gospel of Luke, a little bit later on, we're going to actually see Luke just make this comment. He said, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. One of the primary messages that Jesus has for these religious leaders is you can't fool God. You think you might be able to fool everyone else, but you can't fool God. This quote is attributed to President Abraham Lincoln, who said, you can fool some of the people all the time, and all the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all the people all the time. (laughs) And Jesus would just basically say, In addition to that, you cannot fool God at any time. The one who made the outside knows what's on the inside. I love what speaker Brene Brown said. She said, we spend too much precious time and energy managing perception and creating carefully edited versions of ourselves to show to the world. Doesn't that ring true? Doesn't that hit just a little bit too close to home? We spend a lot of energy and time managing perceptions, creating carefully edited versions of ourselves to show to the world, to show to one another, to show to God. This is exactly what the Pharisees did. They offered carefully edited versions of themselves. So Jesus says in verse 41, But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. This is a cryptic saying of Jesus. What does he mean here? Alms were things that people would give uh, to people in need. Oftentimes we think of giving money. It could be giving of food or just basically meeting the needs of other people. And I think what Jesus is saying here is this. If you want to be known for your radical giving, and Pharisees were known for that, if you want to be known for your radical giving, give to God what is most costly to you, that which is on the inside. If you do that, then everything is clean for you. I love what C.S. Lewis once said in his work, Mere Christianity. He's, He's encapsulating basically what God is after in our lives. And he says this, Give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money, and so much of your work. 
I want you, all of you. No half measures will do. I don't want only to prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit. All of your uh, desires, all of your wants, all of your wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me, and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself, and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. I think something like this is what Jesus is after in that passage. If you want to be known as someone who radically gives, then give yourself radically to God. And then what Jesus does next is he basically enters into a prophetic mode. And he uses this word woe. Listen to what he says, verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, this is interesting. For someone to tithe meticulously like this, that is to give gifts back to God as the, the scriptures required in the Old Testament, you would think that would be a good thing. But Jesus says, woe to you. And in using that word woe, he enters this prophetic, this prophetic mode, which is basically a warning that if you keep going in this direction, it's not going to be good for you. This is what the prophets use, this kind of language. And Jesus is entering this prophetic mode, trying to get their attention. The woe is the opposite of blessing. You keep going this way, it's not going to end up good. He says to them, woe to you, for you tithe, but you neglect justice and the love of God. In the Old Testament, the prophet said things like this, Micah, he has told you, that is God has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The way that we interact with people is meant to tell us very certain things about what we're like on the inside. And so God wants what's on the inside to actually mirror the outside, the outside to mirror the inside. He wants there to be good in the place of, of warped, warpedness, I guess I should say, put it that way. And so Jesus goes on in verse 42, but woe to you, here it is again, woe to you Pharisees, um, let me see here. I got my slide out of order here. Okay, let me just say this again. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue in every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So what Jesus is saying here is like, you're very meticulous in certain areas of your life, but you're neglecting other things. And I think that we need to hear this because it's so easy for us to neglect certain things, isn't it? We don't have to be intentional in neglecting. We just do it. Because we're not intentional and actively going for it. <laughs> Jesus said another time, this, towards the end of his life, when he's in Jerusalem, he'll have an encounter with the Pharisees again. And once again, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So you see what Jesus is going after here. He is speaking in ways that make us very uncomfortable, isn't it? Isn't he? But he's doing this because the Pharisees are hard of hearing. 
they are blind spiritually, and he's trying to awaken them. I think we need to hear Jesus speaking to us in many ways as well, because it's easy for us to appear one way on the outside and neglect things like justice and serving the poor and and doing the things that he calls us to do. And I want to use an illustration. I just came across this um, the week before last in a book that one of my former colleagues uh, has co-authored. And they're looking at, at basically the history of slavery in the United States and uncovering some of the ugliness of what went on. And I want you to listen to what goes on here and see if you can't understand something of this dynamic of the Pharisees outwardly being righteous, but inwardly being full of, of terrible things. This is what they write. In 1855, abolition, abolitionist and educator John Fee estimated the ministers of the gospel and members of Protestant churches owned a total of 660,563 slaves whose total value amounted to $264 million. Adjusted for inflation, the sum is the equivalent to about $8 billion today. So at this time in 1855, it was estimated that over 660,000 slaves were owned by ministers and by Protestant churches. They go on to say this. However, it was not individual members or ministers of local churches alone, but local churches themselves that owned slaves. In this perverse and galling practice, congregations purchased slaves who were hired out to the highest bidder on an annual basis. The compensation for the least labor of slaves typically paid the minister's salaries, and over the course of 100 years in one church's case, thereby relieving congregations or congregants of the responsibility of contributing personal tithes and offerings. We look at that and we go, how crazy is that? I mean, it's crazy that the people own slaves in general, but people who identified as Christians did, and ministers, and churches as well. We look at that and say, how is that possible? But Jesus' words hit home. On the inside, oftentimes, we are more full of of greed and wickedness than we have the courage to admit. And so one more time, Jesus goes for the jugular. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in in the marketplaces. They didn't love God for all their pretension, but there was one thing they loved, and that was the acclaim of people. They love to be thought highly of by others. They, they love the best seats of honor. And they love people greeting them in the marketplaces. In the Gospel of John, he asks, How can you believe when you accept each other's praise and do not look for the praise that comes from only God, from the only God? In other words, if, if what you live for is what other people think about you, then you're going to be engaged in carefully edited versions of yourself, creating those for other people to see. Because that's what you're living for. So Jesus says, look, you guys are doing this because what you're living for is what other people approve of and you've got to give them a version that they can approve. And one more time, Jesus goes for the jugular again. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk all over them without knowing it. Let's just say this dinner party (laughs) is completely done at this point. Jesus says, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Why is this significant? In ancient Israel, if a person walked over a grave, ceremonially they were designated as unclean. 
for a week. They had to go through this ritual purification for a week before they could enter into the temple. And God was trying to teach them that, that nothing defiled can come into his presence. And so Jesus says, you guys are like unmarked graves. What's the significance of that? Once a year, Israel would go out and they would paint the grave markers white so people could see them, so they wouldn't accidentally come in contact with something that was deemed as, as being unclean. And so Jesus says, look, you think that you are leading the nation of Israel in purity, and you're not. You're actually contaminating everything that comes into touch with you. And people walk over what you teach, come into contact with you, and they end up further from God than when they begun. They were, as Philip Graham Ryken says, the most spiritually dangerous people in Israel. That's why Jesus is being very confrontational in this passage. Another time he says this, Woe to you, scribes. He actually flips the script of the whitewashed tombs, and he says it like this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear outwardly righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Wow. I mean, Jesus is not afraid to step on toes, is he? So let's ask ourselves the question that we are asking as we go all the way through this gospel of Luke. I mean, Luke had limited resources and a limited manuscript to work with, and he could have written anything about what Jesus did, yet he decided to include this episode in here. So why does, why does he record this for us here? Well, in the context of the life of Jesus, what Jesus is wanting to do is not make people more religious, but to make them more real. He's not just interested in, in giving people some self-help advice, and just washing the windows and helping people create carefully edited versions of themselves. What he's wanting to do is to create this revolution from the inside out, to change people at the core of their being. And in order to be changed, we have to come face to face with some rather uncomfortable and maybe some ugly truths about ourselves. But it's only then that we're in a position to hear the good news and receive the good news from Jesus. And so maybe if I could summarize our study, it would be something like this. We want to impress others with what's on the outside, but Jesus wants to address what's on the inside. If you and I are more concerned with how we appear to people on the outside, then we need to hear what Jesus is saying here because he's actually more concerned with what's on the inside because he taught us that out of the heart flow the issues of life. So just two points of application here. The first one is this. Let's receive the diagnosis that Jesus is going after here. External appearances can fool just about everyone. Among religious people, it's especially terrible. That's why you and I recoil when we hear of a, a religious leader who, who has this fall from grace, who, finds that, who we find out is living this, this secret life on the side, and we're, just, we're rightfully upset about that. We don't like it when someone who's entrusted with teaching and leading other people demonstrates that inwardly they're full of greed and lawlessness and hypocrisy. And so we don't want to do that either ourselves. And so here's, here's an important point, my friends. Religion, or do-it-yourself spirituality, is very good at helping you create edited versions of yourself, carefully edited versions of yourself, to show to God, to the world, Jesus has come to change us from the inside out. 
Or to put it another way, and we've said this before, <laughs> your goodness can actually keep you from God. If you were to ask people living in Jesus' day, who are the most righteous people? Who are the most godly folks? Everyone would have said the Pharisees. And Jesus says, wrong. Absolutely wrong. If you were to ask, this is Ruby Turpin in Flannery O'Connor's book, who are the righteous people? She would have said, people like me. Jesus would say, wrong. Absolutely wrong. As the prophet Isaiah said, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. You see, when we put our trust in outward appearances and do things for other people to see, we're living for them, not for our creator. And so we trust in that, and it becomes like filthy rags. It's not that doing good things is wrong, but it's when the outside doesn't match the inside. That's when it goes completely off the tracks. And so you can understand why Switchfoot, the rock band, sung this song. They said, I am my own affliction. I am my own disease. There ain't no drug that they could sell. There ain't no drug to make me well. There ain't no drug. This sickness is myself. See, my friends, we typically think of people who make a mess of their lives as people who just go out in wild living and, and just dead. Those right failed in, in big-time ways. Or if you have succeeded in presenting to your, your peers and everyone carefully edited versions of yourself, and we need to understand we're all alike. And we all need the grace that Jesus offers. And he calls us to repent. He says here, I've not come to call the righteous, but really, as we take Jesus seriously, we find out there are no righteous. Everyone has turned to his or her own way. But that's actually the bad news of which the good news shines. Jesus comes to call us all to repentance. We're told by the Apostle Paul in the book of Titus, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. When did the, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appear? It appeared when Jesus roamed this earth, when he lived and when he died and rose again. And in that act, God saved us, not because of righteous things that we have done, but by his own mercy. And listen how he continues. By the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's got to cleanse us on the inside. And he gives us his grace and his spirit to do so. And it tells us that this Holy Spirit is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then he says, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul here nails down exactly the dichotomy. God doesn't save us according to our good deeds, our righteous acts. He saves us in spite of those. He saves us by his grace and his mercy. But he does that to transform us so that we can actually devote ourselves to good deeds. These are things that are profitable and excellent for all people. So that's the first point of application. Let's, let's receive this diagnosis from Jesus. We're much more like the Pharisees than we want to oftentimes admit. But let's also, having believed the gospel of Jesus, live this inside-out revolution of Jesus. 
You see, it's interesting. Blaise Pascal once said, not only do we know God through Jesus Christ, but we only know ourselves through Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus, with these Pharisees, is shouting, drawing these large figures to break through their own self-delusion. And so Jesus not only helps us to know God, but actually helps us to understand and know ourselves. And so Jesus is interested in just helping us with window dressing. He wants to change us from the inside out. And so what would it be like, my friends, if unlike the Pharisees, we stopped creating carefully edited versions of ourselves to show other people? What if we stopped expending so much energy managing other people's perceptions and instead embrace the grace that comes to us in Jesus? What if we were more concerned with what's on the inside than with what's on the outside. I want to give you an assignment, if you don't mind. You're going to need other people's help to see yourself correctly. These Pharisees needed the help of Jesus to see themselves correctly, and I do as well, and you do too. So let me encourage you to to maybe ask someone this question. What's it like to be on the other side of me? I heard this first from a writer and author named Jeff Henderson. What's it like to be on the other side of me? Man, that would be a bold question, right? <laughs> to ask someone. And I tell you, the, the people who know us the best have insight on what it's like to be on the other side of, of you. So I wonder if, if you would have the, the, the courage to ask someone that. As I've challenged people over the years to ask this kind of question to people, to invite correction to others, I really believe that scarce, scarcely one in a hundred people actually does something like this. But there can be great insight to be had about what we are like and how other people experience us if we'll have the humility to invite other people's eyes on our life and to give us feedback on what we're like. What's it like to be on the other side of me? The author Jody Picoult said, we can, I'm sorry, you can fool yourself, you know. You don't think it's, po- it, I'm sorry, you think it's impossible, but it turns out it's the easiest thing of all. Jesus doesn't want the Pharisees to be deceived about themselves. He doesn't want us to as well. And so he comes to us, and oftentimes through other people, to give us insight about ourselves. Paul Tripp, another author and writer, said this, personal insight is a product of community. I need you in order to really see and know myself. Otherwise, I'll listen to my own arguments and believe my own lies and buy into my own delusions. And I just, this makes me uncomfortable. Because <laughs> what I'd rather do is just read a book or come across a, a strategically placed article from God in my life so I don't have to have interaction with other people. But I think Tripp is onto something here. We need one another. We need one another to grow. We we need one another for personal insight. He goes on to say, my self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. If I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold the mirror of God's word in front of me. So my friends, I wonder if we could humble ourselves and begin to move towards one another to build relationships of honesty and trust and begin to invite feedback of what we're like so we're not deceived. Because the stakes are high. That's why Jesus is making everyone uncomfortable at this dinner party. But the stakes are high because there's also a great reward. Another place, in another context, in a, in a story that Jesus told, he has a master saying to his servants, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And everyone who is a follower of Jesus longs to hear God say something like that to us, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So my friends, let's listen to what Jesus has to say here. And let's take it to heart. And so Mercy Hill Church, may God's transforming grace work deeply in you, so deeply, that you live the inside-out revolution of Jesus.